let's just go with this. Let's just go with this. Hello. Record on all the things. Call <sighs> recorder and audio hijack and everything will be fine. I've been wrestling with, uh, with a lot of software. A lot of software wrestling. Sounds like it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how's it going? Pretty good. Oh, I had White Castles. Oh. Mm. Yeah, it's panic. I had a panic eat. More than one. You ate more than one White Castle. Oh boy. Um. Um. See now, I'm I'm all thrown off, John. Thrown I'll off. Do fine. Thank you. Thank you. Um. Uh, um. Okay. Um. Hey. So. Uh, uh. Hey. Welcome. Welcome to the show. This is. Uh. This is one of those uh, weeks. Where members of Relay.fm, uh, Relay.fm, uh, get, get bonus content from... Uh, John, I'm all thrown off my thing now. I'm it's all, all right. thrown off. It's all right. This is a safe place. We should just relax. It's not a safe place. It's a very relax hostile we'll place. Have, we'll have a nice show together. Okay. All right. No feigned surprise. <laughs> no, no alarms and no feigned surprises, please. Silence. Yeah, right. Silence. Um, this is one of those weeks, and uh, we, as we like to do, John and I give each other a little challenge. John, how would you describe what we will be covering in this week's episode? Yeah, for the very special members, after the normal part of this show is over, there will be an extra bit in which we will try to present songs to each other that we like, that we think the other person might like too, and it will be a disaster. So I have like no idea <laughs> you now as usual. Thank you. That was a great explanation up to your too honest ending. I, um, we haven't planned out how we're going to do this. So I think you should come along with us for the adventure. Yep. Yeah. I, it's songs I like, but songs I don't like too much because I can't handle. Right. Well, and also because the songs that you super duper like maybe aren't to someone else's taste, right? So you're shooting for someone else's taste, but just within the realm of your taste. It's a very complicated challenge. It is. It's very complicated, but I used technology. I used technology and my big brain. And, uh, and I, I hope there's at least one that you like. Um, but you can become a member right now. Last time we'll mention it, go to relay.fm slash RD and uh, you can sign up there. Thank you for your support. We have some important follow-up this week. I have no idea what this means. Would you like to? Would you like to read it? It says there's a bullet, and it says I'm going to say "condire." Con, I'm, I'm doing Spanish. "Condire," "condire la pasta." Do it. Do it in Italian. "Condire la pasta." There you go. You got it. Teach um, la puerta. This, <laughs> we, <laughs> we didn't have. We didn't I have a lot of wine. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't have a lot of time to get into this like last episode, but I wanted to talk more about it, even more so as you continue, as we continue to uh, go back and forth about this off the air. And I, yeah, part of it is for you. Yes, I'm trying to set you straight, but really it's for the listeners, hmm. right? It's Thank for, you. Uh, we're trying, we're trying to help. I'm trying to help people here. You want to, uh, that's the thing you always say. You always want to help people. Yeah. Right. So maybe I'll help you, but I hope I will help the listeners. You, you just have to be here for this. I can do that. Accept, I can do that. Accept as much of the help as you can. Wow. Okay. Well, I got to be here anyway, so I might as well sit through it. That's right. There you go. Yeah. Bonus. All right. <laughs> I, think I have a healthy attitude about Kundiri La Pasta. <laughs> Remember two episodes ago that, or maybe I've got, I don't know how long ago in COVID times, we don't know how time works, but no. a while ago, Merlin made my pasta recipe and had great success, even though it was a big pain in his butt. But one point of contention about the finished product was that he hadn't 
followed my ancillary appendix B instructions about oh my <laughs> about okay about the this dressing the of the first email the second email or your yeah. website you don't it was it's the website the website about uh-huh. like I just assumed that it was taken as red that of course follow these instructions to actually I, yeah. I made it so I made the water salty like seawater do I get points for yeah, that yeah yeah yeah. Um, and I think part of the, uh, A, the, the step that was skipped was super duper essential in my opinion. And B, I think there's confusion about the step, which is why it was skipped because it seemed ridiculous. And I, your interpretation of it was like, why would I ever do this? this I, skipped, make any sense. I skipped two steps. I'm sorry to interrupt you. This is extremely important content. I skipped two steps. I didn't mix the, the as you say, pasta. I, did, I didn't mix it with the gravy like you demanded. And I also did not heat the bowls. Right. But see, the the... the the mix, the dressing of the pasta is the the key point. And that's where I was, uh-huh. cir- you sent me a picture of your finished dish and I was circling pictures of just naked, completely <laughs> virgin noodles N- that nude needed pasta. to, mm-hmm. they need to have met sauce. Now your, your complaint was, well, look, I've got a lot of different people in this family and they like different amounts of sauce. So if I were to take it and sauce it ahead of time, it would be like putting dressing on other people's salad for them. You don't know how much dressing they want. And mm-hmm. it also might get soggy, but that's a separate thing. Um, so why would I ever do this step? And that's where I feel like the key <laughs> misunderstanding came in. Mm-hmm. This step, and to, to review what I'm talking about, it's like when you're when you're you've got some sauces already done. Uh, you cook your pasta according to the instructions on my website, which I will link. I'll put that and in then at right the now. end of it. Mm-hmm. You your pasta. You take your pasta out. You drain it. Right. This after you drain the pasta, this is a super duper important next step that if you want to make pasta in the Italian American style that I was raised with, if you want to do that at all, this step is very important. And I feel like this step is one of the biggest differences between the way people who weren't raised in an Italian American household make pasta and the way I'm used to it. And I think it is a change for the better. You may disagree, but at any rate, if you're trying to reproduce the what I grew up with, this is super essential, which is Right after you've drained the pasta, like right after, you need to condire la pasta. I don't speak Italian. Sorry about the accent. Um, you need to get some sauce onto this pasta so that every single piece of pasta has met the sauce. That does not mean you actually sauce the pasta because who knows how much sauce people want. You can't put the sauce on the pasta for the people. You don't know mm-hmm. how much they want. Hmm. It's basically the minimum amount of sauce so that every piece of pasta has been touched by sauce. So if, say, you have a big thing, a pound of pasta, you take a... Uh, it's a, a min, the min, minimum viable pasta. Yeah, you take a, a scoop of... You put the, the drained pasta back in the thing that it cooked in. You take a big scoop of sauce from your big thing that you just made in a spoon, and you just dump some in there, and you stir it around. Your, your goal is to basically get every single piece of that pasta pinkish, right? <laughs> if it's a red sauce, right? Mm-hmm. You'd want there to be not a single piece of pasta that looks the same as after you drained it. You might need another spoonful and throw it in there. You're not actually trying to make it so that there is visible sauce. Oh, interesting. You just okay. need to have every single one coated. Now, this does multiple things. One, it it dresses the pasta. It makes the pasta, it makes the, the sauce as a condiment for the pasta, as Lydia Bastianich would always say, so that your pasta isn't just plain pasta. It tastes like something. Just the pasta itself tastes like something. Without any sauce, it's just differently colored. It's turned pink or whatever. The second thing is your sauce probably has some kind of oil in it, whether it's from fat from the meat that was cooked in it or just olive oil or whatever. That lets the pieces of pasta slide past each other. You never want multiple pieces of pasta to be sticking to each other, especially if it's something like spaghetti or linguine or some long stringy thing. But any any shape, you want the pasta to move past. They want they all move past each other and slide around. So you do you don't want them coated with oil so they don't take the sauce. The whole point is they absorb the sauce and a little bit of the liquid of the sauce and a little bit of the oil lubricates them. Hmm. Uh, this this actually makes this makes sense. This is different from what I thought, which was. 
either dump the pasta into the sauce or no. dump the sauce onto the pasta and then swirl it around good yum. Right. And so this is just a few scoops. And so when you're done with this, okay. what you should have is a bowl of pasta that looks pinkish that doesn't really have much sauce visible on it. Maybe a few splotches here or there. And then that's what you scoop the pasta out of and put it into people's bowls. And at that point, it should look like there's no sauce on it. Like, you know, not it's still waiting for the person who's going to eat it to essentially decide how much sauce and meatballs and sausage they want to put on top of that thing uh -huh. for them, right? Okay. Um, so that step is very, very important. And maybe I just didn't describe it well. I was going to send you a video of me doing it, but it turns out we actually haven't had red sauce pasta since then. Although I did make pesto pasta for myself today. But this step of taking your just cooked pasta and immediately making it meet the sauce, it does not mean you're saucing the pasta. It just means you cannot have a naked piece of pasta that has met no sauce anywhere on your plate they all need to have met it and been coated by it so if and when you ever make this again or if and when you ever make any kind of pasta even if you make it with jarred sauce or something try this step uh -huh. as soon as the pasta is done drain immediately let it meet the sauce and mix it the minimum amount to coat every single solitary piece and then plate it and then put sauce on top to your liking um it isn't as though you need my permission to do this but treat me like an idiot that was not raised in the Italian American style and tell me what I'm um what what I'm not getting is is it a flavor thing a texture thing a heat thing what what is it I'm, and I'm not I'm not against this I will try this um but in your opinion like you you've had pasta different ways what is it about this particular way that uh you you could never go back from All right so the, uh, like I said the main goals of this are one to make each piece of pasta even if it quote unquote doesn't have sauce on it tastes like yes. something other than raw okay. pasta so each okay. one will have met the sauce and will alter the taste two to let it slide past each other so you don't ever get any pieces because you know if you take two pieces of just strained pasta and you just let them smush next to each other they will eventually fuse yeah right, you got all kinds of starch and stuff in there and this is why right. i think it's monstrous that people don't stir the pasta you know, you need you need three times more water than you think for once. I the first time I ever made Kraft macaroni and cheese in college, I it said to use eight quarts of water, which seemed ridiculous. I did not know anybody that had a pot that could hold eight quarts of water. With that said, with pasta, I think you need so much more water than you think. You don't want to just cover the pasta. You want it. You want it to have so much room to move around, and you stir it. Now, do you do that? You don't actually need much water at all, but you're right that the more water you have, the easier it is for you to make sure that it doesn't stick during the cooking process. That's why you're stirring, mm -hmm. because you throw a bunch of dried pasta into some boiling water. If right. you don't mess with it, it will maybe it'll stick to the bottom of the pan. Certainly it'll stick to each other. You're gonna have like six you can have like six uh strips of perfectly straight uncooked pasta spaghetti. Yeah, so you do have to, to stir it around, and the more water helps. But you can you can take like spaghetti, for example, and cook it in a skillet with a, with a half inch of water, and it will wow. come out just fine. Hmm. Like I know that seems sacrilegious to people who are used to using a lot of water. You have to pay attention to it. Like you have to be much more careful. Like it's not easy. It is easier to add more water. And in practice, I always use a ton of water, and so is my family. But you don't actually need it. And sometimes you want less water to make. If your pasta water is an important ingredient in a lot of sauces. And if you want your pasta water to be starchier, you use less water and then mm -hmm. you get starchier okay. concentration of stuff. So anyway, it, it, like I said, if and when you try this again, try that. And listeners out there, if you ever make pasta and you're putting if there's any kind of sauce to the pasta, whether it's a pesto sauce or red sauce, uh, you know, whatever uh, sauce type thing you're making, all 
pasta dishes have this stuff. It's one of the things that if you if you like Italian food and you don't really make it that often at home, but you go to Italian restaurants, and you're like, why does it taste so much better in Italian restaurants? All Italian restaurants do this. Wow. With all okay. of their pasta dishes. It is I'll do an it. essential part of cooking, unless they're unless they're super terrible. But I, I don't literally I don't think I've been to one. Even chain restaurants like Olive Garden probably do this. <laughs> Although I wouldn't swear by that because last time I was there was probably in the 90s. Not by choice. Not by choice. I went that time. Um, thank you for helping me and thank you for helping help helping uh, the listeners. Uh, you ever whenever you uh so you've made baked pasta, obviously. Have you ever done a recipe where you use that like no boil pasta for like lasagna or whatnot? I have not had the guts to do that. Um, I understand the theory behind it, but it's just I'm such a it sounds dumb to say traditionalist because you say, well, that's not traditional. That's Italian American. And that's a that's its own weird modern thing. But modern is a point of view, right? Like it's it's modern as of the, you know, 20s, 30s or 40s or whatever. Anyway. Right. um, No, I just whenever I have baked pasta things, I use the plain old regular pasta and I par cook it. And and yeah, exactly. exactly. And do all the do all the things so, but i bet i bet if you use the no boil ones i probably wouldn't be able to make a difference it's just uh, just mm-hmm. what i'm you know i just do it the regular way because that's what i'm used to but i don't have any particular objection to the no boil ones especially with baked pasta dishes i think i've said this before you can hide i'm gonna say hide a lot of sins but that sounds judgmental you can do all sorts of stuff with something like lasagna and it's fine absolutely well you gave me the, you gave me this note on the baked ziti which is like don't be too precious about this just mix the stuff up, pour it in, and cook it. Yeah, and and you know, and I give you the tip to be for it to be homogenous. But I've had like vegetarian, uh, non dairy lasagna that was good. Like, and you're like, how can that be? Like, isn't yeah. cheese a, a major part of the ingredient? And how can you have something that you, that passes for meat? It's it is possible to do a lot of things with lasagna and still end up with good lasagna. Very flexible dish. Yeah. And so, yeah, no baked noodles would probably just fly right under my radar. I wouldn't even notice. But I don't personally use them. This episode of Reconcilable Differences is brought to you in part by Hover. Of course, you can learn more about Hover right now. You just go to hover.com slash diffs. Uh, you know, what can I say? Hover's the best. They're one of Relay FM's longest running sponsors, and they have been great to me. Um, just in terms of the service, uh, that hover, hover is where I go to get domains and it's just the best, but this is not about me. This is about you. When you have that one big idea, where will you go? Well, most businesses start with a good domain name. If you don't have that, you got Jack. So for many, uh, small business folks, big business folks, podcasters, you name it, hover represents that big leap. Hover has over 300 domain name extensions to choose from. So no matter what you want to build, there is a domain name waiting for it. If you will it, it is no dream. They have excellent technical support to answer any questions you have. Uh, They also have great documentation. They didn't tell me to say that, but it's really easy to get your stuff uh, set up. If you do have problems, you can troubleshoot it, and there's great documentation. Good people. You know, one thing, uh, Hover, they're they're not into, they're not into upselling you. Hint, hint. You know, it's really clear what you get. It's all right there. It's Hover. You could just, you could check it out. If you have work you want to show the world, use a .design domain. Show potential clients and employers that you put time and consideration into your online portfolio. They have lots of these. I have a .limo, which I'm really happy with. I like it a lot. Um, Let me give you some uh, features and bullets. You get free. Who is privacy at Hover? So the bad guys don't get your information. They have a very clean UX, UI. uh, You know, it's how you use the site. It's a technical term. 
You also have monthly sales on popular top-level domains. It's easy to see why Hover is the popular choice for people starting businesses and for people who host podcasts. I've been with them forever. Uh, it's, it's always the place that I go. So easy to use, so intuitive. Why don't you join us? Why don't, why don't you get off your tail and you go to Hover? Specifically, you go to hover.com slash diffs. That's D-I-F-F-S. You get a 10% discount off your new purchases. One more time, you go to hover.com slash diffs. Make a name for yourself with Hover. Our thanks to Hover for supporting Reconcilable Differences and all of Relay FM. My, uh, my wife is uh, currently um, is trying to not just improve her diet, but also to like sort of improve some, you know, minor like health problems, discomforts, tummy aches kind of stuff by doing um, some interesting stuff with um, avoiding certain kinds of food. Um, I, I remember, I think I said this to you, but I remember first hearing this uh, from a vegetarian girlfriend, which would be a great name for a zine or possibly an MP3 blog. And and, and she said, uh, you know, the, the, the trick is like, if you're going to, if you're going to be vegetarian, like don't be lulled in by foods that are pretending to be a different food. Not always, but, but generally speaking, anybody who's eaten vegetarian or vegan for a while wants the best ingredients and a dish that is prepared for what the ingredients are good at rather than saying, oh, you know, this is to, to furkey bacon, duckin or whatever, like you know, make believe protein products. I, I like some, I like textured vegetable protein pretty well. Tofu can be great. Um, Tempeh can be great, but I think that's, it seems like kind of a similar, like right now I'm just looking at this bowl she made tonight and it's incredible. It looks like something that a healthy person who's going to live would eat. It's, it's gorgeous, but it's not presented as like, oh, you know, one of those Jessica Seinfeld, you know, puree cauliflower and put it in your kid's cereal kind of stuff. One of the latest things that my precious teen vegetarian daughter threw in our face the other day was, you always make me these fake meat products. Why does everything have to be something pretending to be meat? And in one of her many, many rants about why she doesn't like whatever it is we're trying to cook her for dinner. She's a vegetarian. She has been for a long time. Finding food that she wants to eat is very difficult. Mostly because she doesn't like vegetables or anything that vegetarians <laughs> that's, normally That's going to be a tough road to hoe for a vegetarian. <laughs> and she gets sick of the few things she does like. It's like, well, you have a very limited palate. And so we do. We have like a... Beyond Burgers, Impossible Burgers, the Tofurky Loaf things. We have all sorts of, like, almost every meal we have, we have, like, the fake meat, you know, analog mm -hmm. for her to have along with us. So it's like we're all having the same meal, but hers just doesn't have to have meat in it. But she complains about that. But the thing is, I make her what I think are amazing vegetarian meals that I eat myself. Though very often it'll be, like, a Blue Apron or something, or we'll just mm -hmm. make up stuff. Like, I just mentioned pesto pasta. I make pesto pasta with summer vegetables all mixed in. It's a summery type thing. Mm, that sounds so good. I love pesto. I, I love it. I mean, you can put you tomatoes, put zucchini in there, our own fresh basil that we grow in our weird arrow garden thing. I think it's great. And she picks around uh, all the vegetables and just eats out the little individual pieces of pasta because she, like your daughter, just consists entirely of uh, <sighs> carbs and chocolate. Well, I don't know if it goes to chocolate, but... Yeah, oh, no. Main... Oh, no, no, no. Ch chocolate <laughs> is the primary driving factor. And, and I also, I want to amend something that I said because it, it's not, obviously, not entirely true anymore. Like, I've had an Impossible Burger and I thought it was great. Like, I thought it was really good. In that case, I'm thinking back to the day when, you know, there was this whole like, well, you know, we, we're, uh, you could get a feeling sometimes, you've heard me say this before, where, you know, I can tell when I love a product more than the people who make it. 
And you get the feeling sometimes with some of that stuff that it's just like, oh, you know, just that, oh, Archer Daniels Midland needs to sell more soybeans. So let's smash them into burgers and like just push them out there because these people don't have any taste anyway. But I, I realize that stuff has come a long way. You know, my one of my top priorities is to not give my daughter an eating, eating disorder. Um, I, I really don't want to do that. And I'm actually like weirdly, I don't know. I, I don't know how to conduct it, but I don't, I don't like to be emotional about food because I've seen what it's done to a lot of my friends especially women. And uh, it could be true or not true. In my experience, a lot of tension, anxiety, and BS in the household gets played out in extremely, if you're lucky, passive-aggressive ways around dinner time, around food. I want to control my food. I want to like tell you how to do your food, all that kind of stuff. So I, I try to like, I try so hard to like give her something that she'll eat that's not just pasta or chocolate. Um, and you know, sometimes you do that. If you show up with a beautifully arranged plate and say, Hey, I made you food, like she'll eat it sometimes. But you know where we're stuck at right now? Two words that are driving me crazy. I'm good. Hey, what do you guys want for dinner tonight? I'm good. Mm, yeah. <laughs> See, that's not really that's not that's like when I ask when I ask you people, you you people, what you want for dinner, it's partly that I want some help figuring out what that's gonna be. But I have to be honest, it's also CYA because I don't want to get something when everybody says I'm good. I don't want to get something or make something. And then everybody goes, ew, you know, this has pine nuts on it or whatever. And it's like, well, you said you didn't care. Like I, you know, I, I don't, it seems very challenging at every age to, even if you're not overly concerned about health in a way that I probably should be. Um, it's just, I find it so challenging. You know, I find it so challenging. Like, and, and the thing is, I'm at the office when she's, you know, having lunch at quote unquote school time. And so <laughs> my, my, my poor wife is like always bending over backwards. Like, just tell me next time you're hungry, I may not have what you want, but tell me what you want and we will get mm -hmm. you the things that you want. And I will have it ready for you at exactly the minute you go to lunch. This is the exact conversations we have. Like, and so the thing is the, the, you know, my daughter who is, who is the one prone to say I'm good or don't worry about it or I'll make myself something like I, I applaud her for being, you know, a self-starter and self-sufficient being able to make your own stuff but left to her own devices she doesn't make great meal choices and you always wonder if she's getting you know having a complete meal or if she's just eating a bunch of crackers or something but you all, i also know that she will become hangry oh sure and at that point it's too late at that point you can't go back it's too late right right she says i'm good but then at a certain point in the night suddenly she becomes the incredible hulk because she's super mad because she's hungry and she may or may not know that. And then it's all complaints about, well, you never make me anything and there's no food in this house. And then we have to go, well, what, every time we go shopping, we ask, what would you like for dinner this week? And you can literally say anything and we will buy it and make it for you. And you say, <laughs> uh, no, I, I can't think of anything, whatever. Yeah. Right. And then the week comes and there's and it's like, what do you want for dinner? Uh, I don't know. And then she gets hangry. Right. So it's it's a constant battle. And and like I said, I think I, I make good vegetarian meals and i eat them that's my dinner i make a vegetarian meal for me and for her and she just picks at it and moves stuff around and I'm good. says that she doesn't like whatever <laughs> the best ingredients in it are know, whether that be like you know uh capers or zucchini or tomatoes i mean how do you not like tomatoes i don't understand this. you know it's very yeah. difficult to make vegetarian meals under these circumstances so she ends up meeting eating a lot of fake meat things, which I think are gross and I won't eat at all, but she'll eat them sometimes, you know? So it's a struggle um, in terms of uh, giving your kids eating disorders. We argue about food all the time, but I hope I'm very, very careful. Never in a way that has anything to do with like 
you know, it's, it's all about just like healthy food. I don't care how much of it you eat. Right. I don't care. Like I just, you know, healthy, actual, real food. Well, and, and just, just, just to be clear, it's not, I don't mean in like, I'm trying to avoid saying anything unnecessarily cruel or controversial, but I mean, I think the old, the old idea used to be, well, you know, you know, Karen Carpenter got this way because X, Y, Z. And like, you know, it's this idea that like, oh, you know, we tell girls what to eat. We tell them not to get fat. We tell, and certainly yep. all that stuff is the worst. But mm-hmm. I'm also trying to avoid, if I can, so here's, have you ever had this happen? You're a good father. You're a better father than me. So you've probably never done this. But I understand that it is possible in a family to go into something that feels very straightforward, a discussion that seems very simple. Um it could, it could even be something where your child reveals an honesty or a vulnerability. My policy is that, and I'm not perfect about this, but whenever someone, especially my kid, is showing me a vulnerability or saying something that, that maybe they're not totally comfortable admitting, never use that as an opportunity to say, well, if you want to X, then you should Y. Where, and it becomes this way of you unintentionally turn this into a different thing. That's what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about? Like, it's the thing where, like, you say, somebody says, oh, wow, you know, a classic would be like, she goes, man, I'm really, I'm really tired. And then, like, do I use that as an opportunity to say, well, maybe use screens less at night and, you know, do this and do that. And it's, no, that, 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 that was a little vulnerability. And I don't help my credibility or the other person's life by using it as a chance to implicitly say, I told you so, or to do to do man advice and things like that. So that's, that's what I'm talking about as well. Yeah. I, I, I definitely, I, I feel like I have to answer those. I feel like it's part of my duty as a parent to, to give the answer with the, you know, I'm really tired, but I, it's about how you do it. I found at least with my specific kids. Um, if you go, well, if you're feeling tired, it's probably because you stayed up so late last night. That's bad. Right. But yeah, you do want to I, convey I the information. Helps. You do want to somehow convey the information that one possible solution to being tired might be going to bed earlier. And so you have to just kind of suggest that in an offhand way, in an offhand cheerful way, as if it's a thing you might have just thought of, and then just leave it. And it doesn't become a thing. Well, do you think she? Do you think she doesn't already know that, or does she just need to be? Well, I'm not, let's not make this about particular kids or people. But do you think it's because they don't know that, or because they need to be reminded, or be? That's what you got to watch. I think it it just needs to be, you need to, it's it's like a lot of these persuasion things. You need to present it in a way that it makes it feel like it's their idea. It's not that they don't know intellectually. It's just like, uh, it's like, boy, yeah, it's, uh, you know, you were up late last night, right? Um, I can, I can imagine you're tired today. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe, maybe if you, uh, you, if you go to bed early, uh, you should, or you should go to bed early tonight to, to catch up on some sleep. Like you have to say it like you're, you're a friend, like, cause if they said this to a friend or something, they, they might say, yeah, well, we were up late last night and like, boy, we were all, you know, I'm going to bed early tonight. Like if, if mm-hmm. two friends said that to each other and one said, I'm going to bed early tonight to catch up, they're not telling the other friend, well, do you should go to bed early to catch up on sleep, but it just puts the idea out there. Mm-hmm. It's not a command. It's not a no, dictate. I, I get it. I get it. I, I, I just, right. um, I don't know. It's part of this whole kind of omnibus effort I'm undergoing right now to try and be better at certain things where I know I've been careless in the past. And this relates directly to that thing I put on Twitter today. That thing you, you, again, the joke or what not joke about, you know, the four rules of the recurse uh, people, mm-hmm. which I just keep, I think about all the time. And I it wasn't until today that it really landed on me that if we, if we each did these four things when we remembered to, if it was, if we did it 5% more often than the default, 
you know, the well actuallys and the feigning surprise and the, um, you know, backseat driving, et cetera. Um, so anyway, I, the reason I say it here is like, I just, I see, I, I think back sometimes and I'm not of even given my particular kind of anxiety, I'm not the kind of person that obsesses over, boy, I wish I hadn't said that. But I do sometimes, like, even as the words are coming out of my mouth, I go like, oh, what is this in service of? You know, like, uh, there's that uh, campaign, I want to say it was Kamala's campaign, but they put up signs on every wall that said something like, why are you saying this? And I'm tempted to put that up too. Why are you saying this? <laughs> like, like, really, let's, let's, let's interrogate why you're saying this. Because if you don't know why you're saying it, that's not great. Or if you think you know why you're saying that and you're wrong, you know, I mean, this is, this can all come off as very like basic, easy aphorisms that are mostly meaningless. But I think living, speaking, behaving, interacting with a little bit more intentionality doesn't have to make you into a hippie, but it can make you understand more about ways you may not realize you're doing something different than you thought. Your motivation may be different than you thought. And definitely in implementation, you are suggesting sometimes something very different than what you thought. Yeah, I think I mentioned this on the show before, way back when, but uh, so the, sort of the, the cruel reality of having your own, you know, genetically related children <laughs> uh, is like that they're going to end up being somewhat like the two parents, which seems dumb and obvious to say, but the consequence of that, uh, speaking of all the things you were saying, like how difficult it is to, you know, to sort of be the parent that you want to be and to, you know, do all yeah, these things. Like that, try, and, try and model well. Yeah. Right. Um, I have some relatives uh, that use this kind of very hippy dippy model of parenting well before it was fashionable, but just like very calm and like non-confrontational and, uh, you know, sort of very in touch with feelings and you know, just a very unconventional parent, non-authoritarian parenting style, very unconventional, right? Uh, and because that's the type of people they are. Both parents were like that. They were a good match for each other, and that's just the kind of people they are. Mm -hmm. And they had their own children, you know? They, they produced children together. And the only way that parenting style can work is if the kids are kind of like that, too. And guess what? They were. The kids were kind of yeah. like that, too, because they were their kids, and they had a lot of the same personality traits. If you had taken those parents and thrown either one of my children at them, they'd have eaten them alive, right? Yeah. And on the flip side of that is I produce children that I see a lot of myself in, and they're a challenge. And it's my, you know, it's the curse and the punishment that may you have children right, that right. are like maybe, you. Maybe especially the you of, uh, you know, being, as you said in one of our early episodes, thrown to the wolves of puberty. Like you were a slightly, at least a slightly different John back then, and I, I would not oh, want yeah. to father you. Yeah, and then, so my daughter's, big thing now is speaking of like doing things for the right reasons and thinking you know not knowing why you do things but or thinking you do know she is definitely in the phase that i spent a long time in where she's super smart right mm -hmm. and she can come up with all the reasons why a why she's doing things and b why things happen and because she's really smart she's good at coming up with reasons that sound like they make sense and sound convincing but are absolutely wrong because she's 13 right she doesn't mm -hmm. right really she's she's hangry she, she's hungry and she's angry <laughs> and and she wasn't paying and she was in a hurry and she was frustrated and that's why she knocked her bowl off the counter but it's not her fault she's going to tell you why it's everybody else's fault that all these things happened and and let her enumerate the ways and you know like like she's presenting a case before the supreme court 
And she does an extremely <laughs> please, Your Honor. <laughs> she does an extremely thorough job. She's fast. She's smart. She has a case, and she makes it. And it's like, and I was I was that exact person. That's the kind of kid that I got. You cannot parent that kid entirely by like not to say that I that I you know I I see her doing that and I recognize it and I realize I, there's no way out of this. Like, because I'm not going to yell at her or something, right? I, and if I try to explain to her why her reasoning may not be what she thinks it is. That's not going anywhere either because she's mad, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you, you're, you're. It's it's not. A, first of all, it's not really a fair fight in, in that way, you know. <laughs> and as your kid gets smarter, your kid gets older, your kid gets more willful. I think it's. I'm not saying you're doing this, but I. I try to watch myself with this. Is like, you know, do I, do I want to do the right thing here, or do do I want to win this? You know, and are those always the same thing? Like, yeah, no, not often. So, so it ends up not being. Uh, I don't. I don't make it a battle at all. Uh, all I can do is file it away and, you know, try to make maybe a wry comment about, you know, yeah, boys, it, doesn't it stink when we all, doesn't it stink when we all get frustrated and, and bad things happen and then help, that help her out with whatever her problem, like just again, uh-huh. try to make it to seem like as I'm, you know, that we're both experiencing this thing that's happening, boy, this thing, and this thing that's happening is like her anger or her frustration or her problem that she's having. But here I am with you and we're both experiencing it and it's kind of a bummer. Um, and, you know, and, and that, you know, because if you try to make it a confrontation, it will just escalate and I won't do that. And the other thing is like, she, both my kids will be smarter than me shortly. Like that time is coming, but mm-hmm. they will not be wiser than me for a very long time. So all I have left to offer them. Oh, that's, that's a good, that's a good distinction. It's all been, I have it's been left really to offer them is wisdom. To, you know, as the person who used to be, uh, as you know, I mean, I think I've had a way too high estimation of my own skills at a lot of things especially technology for many, many years. But I was the sort of person that you could call to like help you set up your stereo and make sure the RCA jacks are doing the right thing. And is it plugged in and all that kind of stuff? I, you know, or like building a piece of furniture or whatever that was. And one of my favorite ways to see my kids surpassing me right now is not only just her wonderful eyesight where she can see things and read things, but also like there's just times where I'm like, I can't make this thing work with this other thing. Could you do your magic? And, and I feel good about it. She feels good about it. But I hand her the thing and I say, like, I don't know, what, what am I doing wrong here that this isn't working? And I, I, I am a very proud father, but I'm also very honest when I say, like, uh, an amazing amount of the time, it, it's now my wife and I that turn to her, not to try and make her feel good, but because, like, we seriously need the help with this. And she's, she's better at it. She likes a project. And it's good for everybody. My, my kids will never be better than me than me in those things because they just don't care about that. But but like that's people always Photoshop. think that's people always you know? yeah people always think that's a measure of like oh you must be smart because you understand. But it's not. It's like it like those type of things are things that anyone can learn how to do if they have the interest. But most people don't have enough interest to ever learn. I happen to have the interest in all those things. My kids don't, and so they don't know how the TV works. They can't fix their own computers. They can't fix their phones. Like you name it. But I'm also just talking about like simple machines. I mean, I'm I'm talking about like so. What was the thing I was working with recently? I was trying I was trying to get a um, I was trying to figure out how to get a camera into a mount, and I was following the instructions. I put on my glasses, but anyway, I you know I I, I hear what you're saying, uh, but it's also it's not just. Yeah, a, no, but when I say they're smarter, I just mean like they're, they're they have more raw intelligence. They're faster. They can you know they can understand abstract reasoning better than I can. They have better memories, but they have no experience of the world. They they're they're relatively no, I ignorant. That. I get that. of facts, and they have no wisdom. And so that's what I have to offer them, not not my smarts, but just like things that I have done. And that, that comes under the category of my, my, my son, again, less adventurous, 
is often thwarted by the packaging of food items, and it's always fun. To, I try not <laughs> to laugh. This is why you think I he's going to starve, right? <laughs> I try. I try to be kind because he he's he's a gentle person. He doesn't want like so. What did we have? The container of something. You ever see those like clear containers? You get at, like Whole Foods, and they have like a little pull tab where it's like little perforation. You pull off this strip of plastic, and that mm-hmm. opens one side of the hinge, right? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. It's not like a, like on a gallon of milk, where there's like a little strip, and then it ke- keeps a hinge on there so it can flip without coming off. But you gotta grab the little tab nubbin and. Oh, I think like like a like a rectangular thing. Say, I don't know what was in this. Maybe it was lettuce or something. I don't remember. But so, like a, a oh, rectangular, clear, mean, like get, clear container. Yes, yes. Right? Yes, and yes. it looks like it's just all one piece. It looks almost like one of those things you have to open with the stupid scissors, but it's not. There's a giant tab that if you don't realize, you just pull that tab and then you can lift the, the lid off. Mm-hmm. And he's often thwarted by things like that. Just because like this is the first one of those he's ever faced in his life. He's 16 years old. and This is the first container of lettuce he's ever had to open. Right? And so it's... I don't want to just do it for them. And I'm certainly not going to say, you don't know how to open that. Faint surprise, right? Faint surprise, um, yeah. But what, I'm going to, what I usually say is, you can figure it out. You're smart. I believe in you. Give mm-hmm. it a try. Nothing bad will happen. It is this, is this is a zone where mistakes will not hurt you. Like, I would tell you if it was going to explode or burst into flames. But really, you're pretty much safe. Give it a look. Like, maybe, you know, turn it over in your hands. I'm, I don't want to do it for them. I want them to figure it out themselves. They just need to, yes. like, be confident enough to do it. And most of the time, they do open it. Um, mm-hmm. you know, but, but that's, that's not a lack of intelligence. That's a lack of experience. And that's my fault for not making him open more mm-hmm. containers. It might but... just be a lack of, a lack of curiosity, a lack of enthusiasm for, for that. But yeah, a lack it, of enthusiasm for making your own food. That's for sure. Speaking of that, and, in, and in the COVID times, alive. Yeah. where everyone's doing remote schooling, it was, we we're having trouble getting my son to eat anything reasonable for lunch. Like he loves the only meal my son eats is now dinner. And so he has dinner leftovers for lunch, and then he has dinner for dinner, and then he has dinner <laughs> leftovers for breakfast. Like he's he no longer eats breakfast. He never recognizes the the, uh, the existence of breakfast or lunch. So we're like, this has to stop because a you're eating through all our dinner leftovers, which we sometimes plan to have for dinner, and b what happened to breakfast and lunch? Those are meals we used to you know for your whole school life. We've been sending you to school with a lunch that you've been eating. Like we've been making his lunch for him just because you know we can control what he eats and give him, make sure he has a healthy lunch or whatever. But when our, now that everybody's at home. He was just wandering the house, getting hangry, going, what's for lunch? There's no leftovers. And I would I would suggest to him to eat all the things that we used to send him to school with. All those, you know, for, yeah. for your entire school th- career. See, su- suggesting feels like it should help. The suggesting, uh, but like, it's a game. It's a game. She stands there with the door open and says, what can we eat? And I said, well, you can have whatever's in there. That turns into then this guessing game. What's in I, there? We, we keep naming things. And, and, and she, she's not interested in any of that. And so how do you, how are you going to deal with this? And so the the way we, we were dealing with it for now with my son is we are making him the same lunch we would make him if we were sending him to school and we're just sticking that lunch in the fridge. (laughs) It's the same food that was in the fridge. Like it's nothing, nothing is different about it. Right. It's like when he would say, what's for lunch, we would say this, like, you know, the same thing we're going to, we would put in the bag, that same food is in the fridge. It's just not already assembled, but just the one minor step. Not only would he not make it himself, I would say, I would say to him at lunchtime, I'd say, I'll make you a sandwich. I'll make you the sandwich we would have sent you to lunch with. And he would refuse. But if the sandwich is already made, that exact sandwich that I offered to make him, if it's already made, he'll eat that. Absolutely. <laughs> so it doesn't Absolutely. make any sense, but that's what we're doing. So now we are making him a lunch that was already in the fridge that I offered to make him at lunchtime. But because it's not made at lunchtime 
and it's made in the morning and he just goes when he wants lunch he goes into the fridge opens it up and pulls out his pre-made lunch that somehow works so you go with what works it's very fortunate these aren't cave people you know you said something earlier and we you know we were both kind of talking about the uh i, I call it modeling but you talk about like having to deal with your kids and how they are or are not like you and i feel like there's these there's so many of these but a a big one two punch of circle of life in slow motion is like the first of all there's the first thing which is the first time that you find yourself acting like your parents or famously of course saying something that you only your parents would say that in a million years you would never say except that now you're a parent and that's the kind of thing you say whether that's you're going to catch your death of cold or john mulaney's ah this ought to be good you find yourself saying like you're like oh my god that's so weird to feel and then you know what the sort of uh I don't know, the transitive property of that is the first time. So, you know, like when we're talking about like how you want to act, how you want to model, like another way to put that is how, what would you like your kid's default response to become? Because be careful that it's not what your default response is when you don't know it. So the second of the one-two punch is when you're like, oh no, my kid just behaves so badly because that's exactly how I would have responded to the same stimulus. And that's, that's when I feel like a real piece of crap. Is where I'm like, oh man, I I do I do probably like I don't want to say fly off the handle, but I get frustrated. And I do this with my brow, you know, and I, I make a very kind of Bill Cosby face. And then when your kid does that, it's like, oh god, I you learned it from me. Yeah, I mean, and a lot of people you see this. This is actually one of the common things that's played out in media. So most people are probably familiar with it. But the idea that uh, what you dislike in others is the same things that you dislike in yourself. So if your kid exhibits your worst traits, that can trigger a fight because now you're angry at <laughs> seeing your own faults reflected you're fighting, back you're to you. You're fighting both of you. <laughs> yeah, you, 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 people don't like it when they see, you know, that if, if someone, you know, I don't know, it, it's been, you've seen lots of different times. Like you've already mentioned, like if you are someone who is chronically late and, uh, and then you get over that and, and experience people who are also late, now you're super angry because you used to be like that. Or the way... Ex-smokers yeah, ex, ex, ex are angry smokers. about smokers. Ex-smokers who are exactly, right. yeah. Uh, but even but even if things who aren't ex, like if you're, if you're chronically late still and other people are late, it can make you angry to see your current self reflected back in you. And it's the same thing with your kids. If your kids have the same negative reaction that you would have, now you're angry at them for being just as bad as you are. Even if you're not better than that now, even if you're like, I do that and now my kid does that and now I'm angry at my kid for doing that because I'm angry at myself for doing that and now we're all angry. And that is not <laughs> great. No bueno. Hey, listen, here's the thing, though. The thing I, I want to get across to the listener is, you know, if somebody, if, somebody, uh, if somebody asks you what it is you want for food or what kind of food you would like, please consider, you know, answering that. And, and you know, and, and if you're the only person in the house that drinks milk, I'm not pointing any fingers here, but if there's an item in the house and you are literally the only person that uses it, please do not count on other people to notice when you are almost out of it. Can I ask that? Is that too much? Just put, just put the empty container back in the fridge. What's the problem with that? A lot of empty you know, containers. You know, but then I get this because you know, and again, now of course I'm Sisyphus, and 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 I'm like each time this happens, I'm trying not to make a big deal about it. No, no eating disorders, no whammies. But like, I, I would just be like, you know, I I don't, I don't, I have not made a practice of jiggling, shaking, or rattling around every container in the house on a daily basis. If it's a thing that like you know, you know which deodorant I check to see we're out of the one that I use for my deodorant. There's all kinds of things. Like toothpaste, if I notice that, man, I'm Johnny on the spot. That'll be here before the other one's empty. 
because I am the supply sergeant. I'm Sergeant Sale. This is <laughs> this is my job. I understand that. But what I what I what I'm not prepared to do is accept the 3:35 p.m. blame for us uh, being out of milk and the sighing. Like, can we get more milk? It's like this this would have been so much more useful yesterday. You should have married a hoarder because we have about 500 tubes of toothpaste and we're never going to. It's, it's called scrapbooking. They call it scrapbooking. Yeah. As as I've said many times, other people could shop at our house. It's like a store. <laughs> That's we right. Don't I have, forgot we don't about have your one milk. or two of anything. I forgot about the milk. Yes. Right. Oh, and God. So, yeah, the All milk right. is the same deal. But yeah. yeah All yeah. right. But children are a blessing. A blessing yeah. and a yeah. mitzvah. Uh, although, like I mentioned again, my, my relatives who are very gentle and they ended up having gentle kids. How I can imagine them dealing with the situations we just described about, you know, not knowing what's for dinner or whatever. They'd be like, they'd do something like this that you would look at and think wouldn't work for you. But I think it actually can, depending on how you pull off it. Like. Let's let's make it a game. Each night, someone in the family, it'll be their turn to choose what they want to eat. And it's fun because you get to pick what you want to meet. And then we'll plan the meals together for the week. And it gives people agency. So it's not just the parents asking what do you want and the kids having to answer because that's a lot of pressure. We'll do a rotation and make it a family activity. And that sounds like, oh, my kids would just roll their eyes at that and never engage in it. But I believe that even if you don't have the good hippie gentle kids who actually buy in for that, right? If you don't have Flanders kids, right? But you have Bart Simpson and Lisa, you can still pull that move off <laughs> if you can manage us play. <laughs> if you can yeah, if you can manage to not be your terrible self for like 3 seconds, you can yeah. somehow somehow pull that off and that does make it more interesting for everybody because it is unfair to like you you feel like you're the exhausted parent a long day of work, you got to go shopping, you just want to know what you want to get for the kids. If you choose on your own without consulting them, they complain. If you try to consult them, they complain. It seems like a no-win situation, but you can actually turn it into, let's get excited about each, just, you know, if you say planning a meal, they will flee. But like, if you can pull that off somehow, I... No, but you could just say, I mean, if your kid likes making salads, like my kid likes making salads more than eating them, but you could say, hey, will you help me make a salad tonight? You can pick some of the stuff. I mean, that's, I don't think that is a transparent, passive aggressive mm-hmm. thing. It's actually your, your... In the same way that my kid likes likes a project and figuring out how a thing works, I'm not pandering to her. You know, I think I think there's ways to make it fun yeah. without being too cute. It's all it's all about the approach. The exact same thing can come off as, like you said, as, as pandering or as like you're trying to trick me into you know painting the whitewashing yeah, the fence or whatever. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. exactly. But but it can be. And it's not like you're lying. Like you want to have fun doing the thing too. It's just difficult if you're if you yourself are tired and cranky, trying to muster all of that. Right. In the face of the angry child is not easy to do, but I I, I believe it does actually work. The whole point is that my my hippy dippy uh, relatives, they're right. (laughs) Everything they did was right. Uh, They may have had a slightly easier route to it, but not completely easy because they get tired and cranky, too, because being an adult is difficult. This episode of Reconcilable Differences is brought to you in part by Burrow. You can learn more about Burrow right now by visiting burrow.com slash diffs. Summer is all about relaxation. You know, those lazy, hazy, crazy days of summer, they're going away fast. But you know, whether it means going on a vacation or just laying around with a good book, you know, a lot of us have had to postpone our travel plans, let's be honest. So why not make your at-home staycation as relaxing as possible, lay out on a comfy new sofa from Burrow. Here's the thing. Burrow is practical and versatile. You can assemble your sofa in minutes by yourself. You don't even need any tools. I did it. I carried the boxes up, put together a sofa. Boom. You can add or remove seats as needed. You can convert a love seat into a sofa, into a sectional, and back. Wow. 
It's like a you know a Legos for furniture. Pretty great. Uh, Burrow also offers uh, unique features that you won't find in big box furniture store sofas, boo, or even on other sofas you can get online. This is crazy. Built-in USB chargers so your phone doesn't die while you lounge. Super handy. Durable fabric that's naturally scratch and stain resistant. I make a lot of both, so that's handy for me. And there are over 23,000, with a T, 23,000 ways to customize your perfect sofa. You can pick your fabric color, leg finish, arm style, and length. You can add a chaise lounge or an ottoman or both. It's just crazy. You can do anything with this. It's almost too much power. And their iconic Nomad collection of sofas and sectionals is now available in five shades of performance velvet. I'm going to say that again. Performance velvet. It's their most glamorous upholstery option yet, but it's still durable and stain resistant. And I, I need that, you know, because of all my problems. Here's a crazy thing. Uh, my lady and I have been looking for a sofa for years. The, the previous sofa we had was manufactured five months before I was born. It's in my office now and I sleep on it. And it's disgusting. But for years, we've been trying to find a sofa. It's no fun. And you know what? Even before they were a sponsor. But I don't know how we ended up there. For one thing, it was on my wife's short list for years. We went and got us a burrow. And it was really great, really easy to put together. And now I, I, I sit my fat butt on it every night. Thank you to Burrow. Mm. But you know, here's the thing. It's more than sofas. You can now outfit your entire living room with Burrow's innovative, adaptable designs from rugs to wall shelves. And creating a stylish, cohesive space is now easier than ever with Burrow's new collections. You can choose the elegant Serif collection for a mid-century inspired look, or you could pick the versatile Bento collection for functional storage and customizable options. Each collection includes a credenza bench coffee table and side table. Ooh, it's, a, it's like a suite. You get, you get it all, you know? This is wild. You know, you get fast and free shipping and zero interest financing. And zero is a good amount of interest, you know, for, for financing. Yeah, I've been really happy with it. I like it a lot. And, you know, I regret nothing except for the fact that I don't have performance velvet. But you can. And right now, you can get $75 off your Burrow purchase. Plus that fast and free shipping, you go to burrow.com slash diffs. That's D-I-F-F-S. Please just, you know, check out their site. They, they have details. You, you can learn about, about sofas and things. I haven't looked uh, to see what they have about performance velvet, but I have to imagine it's, it's, it's very good. You go to burrow.com slash diffs, B-U-R-R-O-W.com slash diffs for $75 off. Nothing wrong with that. Our thanks to Burrow for supporting reconcilable differences and all of Really FM. Everybody's got a baseline, but listen, listen, we need, we need to make sure we leave time for the musical challenge. But speaking of children and danger, how'd you how'd like that for a segue? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Tell me, uh, tell me what our main topic is tonight. Our main topic, which now we've eaten up a lot of time into because we're talking about our kids, which goes on for a long time is dangerous things that you did unattended as a kid. Yes. I thought of this because I had, I watched recently, um, uh, there's a bunch of these, but uh, the most recent one I watched was the HBO uh, documentary about Action Park called Class mm-hmm. Action Park. I'll put a link in the show notes to both Action Park and this documentary. It was the least bad Action Park documentary I've seen. There was one that was on YouTube that I thought was pretty good, covered a lot of the same stuff. I mean, this one seemed a little bit thin in terms of like needing to turn it into a whole feature length movie. But I, I love the archive footage. I, I, yeah. I it's, it's, I, I, the Action Park stuff is. Whether however I'm watching it or reading about it is just fascinating to me. It's from such 
a time, a different time, but very much like a time. Like it's, you could not have had that situation in many other decades because there was enough like, what the, the combination of like, uh, so, well, okay, well, just real quick, like the drinking, right? <laughs> the the drinking, the the fact that kids could like mostly just run around, as you say, like unattended there. You could just go along with your, I don't know, your careless babysitter who's going to be having some beers, but also just like the lack, the, the lack of sort of standards, the people who are not in any position to be able to design a water park ride, designing potentially deadly rides. How would you, um, how would you describe it, uh, describe it to folks who haven't and won't watch it? Yeah, I don't want to get too far into the Action Park documentary because it mostly just reminded me of this. But a big part of it was like Action Park was a, a water park kind of near the New York metro area where people from the New York metro area would go. And in this in uh, this clash Action Park thing, they interview a lot of adults who were then kids and they would describe like how they went there. And it's like, oh, well, we Chris would just Gethard's go up it, yeah. and, and then we would just the kids would just go off and do whatever they want. And the parents would just go to the beer garden or just, you know, whatever or people would get dropped off or they would take the bus or they would drive with their older 17 year old friend. And there is a bunch of other teenagers like completely unattended, just Oh, just, you know, it's a thing that kids do because it was a different time or which, whatever. Which would be one thing if it were almost any other place. Like Disney I, I mean, or Great America I would America sooner send a kid to like a carnival, which is not very safe in mm-hmm. any way. But but the, 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 the unique thing about this is, so what, just real quick, the guys behind this, they bought a... Was it not a farm? What was it they bought? It was, it was like a ski resort. Oh, ski. It, was, it was a ski resort. Yeah. Ski resort, they turned it into, like slowly built this out into this water park. And it seems like almost almost every new attraction designed by people who were in no position to design these attractions, it seems like each one was potentially more dangerous and possibly fatal, disfiguring than the other. Like each one was screwed up in a different <laughs> a different way, including one that could like knock your teeth out. They found like teeth in this one attraction, all these. But yeah, it's 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 a crazy story from a very specific time. And I, and I think I'll probably leave action park in here and we'll come back to it. And I'll talk more about specifically about action park and my experience with it. But what it reminded me of is kids of this generation, which more or less includes both of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, it made me think of all of the dangerous things I did when I was unattended as a kid that didn't involve like going to a park, just like around the house. Like, but this yes. is what our life was like. And it's the type of thing that, you know, that I look back on and think, how did I, a, how am I still alive? And B, how were we all able to do this? Not just like one or two little incidents or whatever, but this was our way of life. And I, I thought we should uh, swap stories about dangerous things we did just around our own house or our own neighborhood with our kids that were just sort of part of our life, whether you look back on in horror yeah. and think, I, A, I can't believe I did that. And B, I would never allow my child to do that in a million years. Yeah, as I tried to collect a few of those, uh, my guiding principle was like stuff in often fairly mundane settings, but there was nobody there to stop. Not, not only like not notice what I was doing, but in no position to to stop. I was I was an unaccompanied minor for some very very stupid acts. So now you should enumerate them. I'm going to save my best one for last. I used to do a lot of stuff. What I've written down here is uh, I did parkour before parkour. Um, there was just these weird, you ever had like just weird skills challenges you and your friends would come up with like a weird, it could be something as simple as like, you know, how many times can you make the billiard ball? How many, um, 
what do you call it, banks or bumpers? Like how many banks could you hit with, uh, mm-hmm. there's that, or just all these, like, we wouldn't just make up these Calvin Ball type games. But one of those was like a church. We would do these like little like ninja exploration missions that involved jumping over fences and jumping off of walls. And somewhere, somewhere in between a Bruce Lee movie and a music video, there's a lot of that. The one that I did a lot of that, um, I, I, I mean, I can believe I did this, but I, it scares the hell out of me is tree climbing. Like I, I love climbing trees. I love climbing things in general. I was, I was climbing buildings in college. There had been a 20 year old, like tome, somebody about been written on all of the buildings you could climb at new college and how to get started with it. I was doing that in my twenties, but uh, that's a couple of my tree climbing. Can't believe, um, that's, that's a couple of mine. Give me one of yours. I was, uh, tree climbing is one of the most wholesome things I did. I didn't even think to think of that, but now that you brought it up, uh, yeah, I was, a, a obsessive tree climber as a kid. I was the the champion tree climber. I would climb the bigger trees than anyone in the neighborhood. I would dare to go on trees that other people wouldn't, and I would go higher in them, all of which was incredibly dangerous. Uh, and I did this well up into my teen years. When, in fact, we moved into a new house and I was in high school. We had a, a hill in our backyard that had a tree on it that you could go to the very, very tippy top of and get this amazing view of the entire neighborhood. And I look at that tree now and it's like, you A, you shouldn't have been on that tree at all because half the branches were dead. And B, by the time you get to the top, the 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 quote unquote trunk was like the thickness of your arm. Right. And you, yes. And you were like you were, atta- you know, as, as high as you could possibly go in these trees. But I I, I climbed every tree, and I said, this was the wholesome one. And I think about it now, it's like, but but like it's only occurring to me right now. Like if you think about how a tree works, most climbing trees, there's a few interesting things about it that really makes every foot that you go up that tree dangerous in a number of ways. Uh, looks like limbs at the bottom. They're usually very thick and sturdy. They're usually fairly close together. So you can get started with that pretty easy. And like you say, the higher up you get, not only to state the obvious, you are higher off the ground. Every foot you go up is more for you to fall. But also, like you say, they could be dead. They could be spindly. They could also be like, to find the next climbable branch, you might need to make quite the leap of faith about whether this is going to be able to hold you. Otherwise, you're going to be going pinballing down the oak. Yeah, this this tall this tall tree in my backyard is the one I remember because it's the most recent. Uh, you know, I was the oldest when I did it. It was a pine tree, and it was the kind with the the bark <laughs> that kind of sheds off. It's like those big chunky bark that sheds off. Yeah, right. It's not a smooth bark pine. It was one of the ones you could t- tear chunks yeah, of yeah. the of the bark that, off. That, that's that's bad for the tree, but it's great for fake money. Yeah, um, and and it it was very it was very straight tall trunk and had a pine tree. It had those you know the branches coming straight out of it. And you know, if you've ever been a big pine tree like that, 50% of those branches are dead or dying, right? Like they're just, they're just old and creaky. The, the, the and ones maybe that they're... are alive are usually pretty um, flexible too. That's a very wet kind of tree. You think of like, think of like a big pine tree, like, like a hundred feet tall. Like it's not like a, I don't know if it's hundred feet, but it was like, it, you know, it was, it was not like a, a Christmas tree. It was like more like a, a redwood, but pine. I don't know what kind of tree it was, but like it was a very straight trunk and the branches came straight out of it at 90 degree angles and they were all over. Right. But half of them were dead. And when they break, <laughs> they break off sheer right at the trunk. So oh I, I mean, I can remember, I have memories of climbing that tree and I'd put my foot right next to the trunk because that's your maximum, you know, the branch would bend the least, put my foot right next to the trunk, put my weight on it, shoop, that whole branch just disappears and falls down the tree. And I better <laughs> now, hope that- Now what are you going to do, smart guy? <laughs> I better hope that I have at least one hand and one foot on something else. And I did. And as you go up the trunk, it's thinner and thinner and thinner. I remember it was trees like that getting to the tippy tippy top. 
one of the things we would do is at the very top, you could bend the tree by swinging. Like you'd rock back and forth to bend the tree so you could make it like lean a fury, over. Like a fury road kind of thing. Yeah. And you could grab onto another tree and go oh from tree to tree God, in that John. way. And now we're, we're so high up in the air that if we fell, if we didn't die, we'd certainly be paralyzed. And I yeah. say we, but it really was only me that was up there. But yeah, tree climbing was, was a big thing. I think, but that's like, I'm. You know, I did that my entire life. I, I'm a very good tree climber. If there's, ever, if there's ever needed to climb trees, actually, with my aging body, it probably is all gone. But I know what to do in a tree, and apparently I know how not to die. And by the <laughs> way, that tree, you couldn't even reach the first branch. To get to the first branch, you had to use the skills that I acquired in roping, where you could throw a rope over a branch. Oh, my and, God. You know, and climb the rope to get up to the first branch. <laughs> That's insane. So, anyway. Did you ever try and climb a telephone pole? See, that, that's the other thing about these pine trees. Because they had such straight trunks, very often, as you said, the next branch that you can get to, you can't reach. So I would have to shimmy like a telephone pole up a completely bare trunk with that shedding bark on it to get to the next branch just by sort of bear hugging it and wrapping my legs and arms around it and sort of shimmying my way up as the bark scraped off to get to the next branch because there were gaps that were bigger than I was. Um, but going did, way did back, feel, did it feel unsafe at the time? Or, or you know, when you look back, do you do you remember how you felt? Did you realize it was a little crazy? Sometimes it felt unsafe, and I thought about it a lot. But I mostly thought about it in that kid way of like not getting in trouble. It was less about my own death and more about if my parents mm-hmm. found out what I was doing, I might get in trouble, and I don't want them to stop me from doing this. Mm-hmm. So that was most of the caution. Occasionally, there was a little bit like when a branch breaks, you have that moment of like I'm going to die, but. But you have the confidence of a child and thinks you're invincible and, you know, nothing bad is going to really happen to you. And so I survived it. But like when I was very young, I was, I don't know, I, I was a, a fairly, I was more like my daughter. I was a fairly adventurous, self-sufficient kid. When I was in kindergarten and we had, I think we had just moved or recently moved into a, a second house. My brother was just born. So I must have been what, like five years old. Yeah. Kindergarten. Came into this new neighborhood, came in this house. I had a bicycle. And I met someone in the neighborhood, another another boy, and we're like, we need to do boy things, which involves like, you know, look at that tree and this tree. If we got some rope and some pulleys, we could connect the two trees with ropes. And, and we didn't know what we were doing, right? But we connect the two trees with ropes and pulleys, and we can make a zip line, and we can go between them, and we could build a fort, and we can do this. But we didn't have how we. I don't have any rope. Do you have any pulleys? Do you have any nails or like whatever it is that we thought at literally <laughs> that, at five years old? Doesn't mean this should stop our plan. I'm sure we're going to be good. Right. And so, again, we're in kindergarten, right? Just starting kindergarten. The bus stop was in front of his house. That's how I met him, right? And so what we did, because this is what five-year-olds did, is we uh, we got on our bicycles. He stole $20 out of his mother's wallet, which was a thing oh kids did in the 70s, God. just FYI. <laughs> he stole $20 out of his mom's wallet. That's so we much got, money. Right. In, in like, 1980. Um, we got <laughs> that on our was little a lot bicycles. That money for me in, like, 2002. <laughs> we got on our bicycles. And we rode to the hardware store, which was like six miles away down the highway. Oh, my God. And oh somehow God. we we left that store with pieces of hardware. I don't know why. I don't remember doing this. Like my friend brought the stuff. I don't know why someone behind the counter would allow a five-year-old to buy rope and pulleys with, with a $20 bill, <laughs> seeing their bicycles leaning against the curb outside. <laughs> Never mind. How did they get there? Because it's down high. Anyway, we got the rope and the pulleys and we rode our bicycles back. My parents had no idea this happened until I was retelling this story when I was in high school. And they're like, when did you drive to the hardware store and how? It was like when I was in kindergarten, right? And, you know, we would try to nail the pulleys to the trees and they would come out and fall on us. And it was just, you know, in general danger. The, the second thing that I remember doing is this neighborhood that I moved to, there was an elementary school that had closed down, like they had built an elementary school that they no longer needed. 
So the elementary school had closed down uh, and it was, it was like right against the neighborhood. So you just need to go on neighborhood streets and then there was the elementary school, which would have been convenient if, uh, you know, if that was my school. But anyway, it wasn't. I had to go across the highway to a different school. Anyway, it was there, but it was, it was closed. No kids were going to it. Entirely surrounded by a barbed wire fence. So at the age of five or six, we and all my friends learned very quickly, how do you climb a barbed wire fence with the slanted barbed wire that slants, you know, towards you so you can't, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, well, it's got the little sort of like V-shaped thing on top. Yep, three strips of barbed wire how, and that are that are tilted towards you. How do you scale a barbed wire fence? That became so routine that it, we didn't even think about it anymore because it was just let's go play down by the school. So we would scale the barbed wire fence. You would you would you throw uh throw carpeting over it like in a prison break? <laughs> no, because when you're a kid, uh, you're small and very light, mm-hmm. and if you ha- and you can build up sort of your climbing muscles from climbing trees the little knots in the barbed wire were far enough away from each other that you could do handholds between them with your little six-year-old hands and oh my feet. God. We would yes. literally just climb the barbed wire by simply carefully placing it. Occasionally, your pants would get caught and you'd rip them and you'd be like, oh, my mom's going to kill me because I ripped my pants. But yet occasionally, one would snag your skin and scrape you or whatever. And sometimes they're rusty and, you, you know, and it would, like, but we survived. And what would we do when we got into the school? Like you were saying, like, oh, it's now it's a condemned building and a condemned building, but a closed elementary school <laughs> with boarded up windows and doors, which we were too small to really pry open. But we could, tr- we would try to find our way in, but mostly we wanted to get on the roof. So we get on the, get wow. on the roof of the elementary yeah, school. Wait, you're like six at this point? Yeah, six or seven. Oh my God. John. But this is just a thing we did routinely. Let's go play down by the school. This is what this meant. The other main activity was after the 4th of July, we would go there and find all the spent fireworks that the older kids had set off. Oh my God. And you're slowly, carefully open them to extract the silver like firework dust and, and make one giant bomb firework out of the residue of the non burned, like, ex, you know, fuel inside the other fireworks. <laughs> the anyway. unexpended ordinance. <laughs> yeah. Right, because we weren't old enough to have the good fireworks, but we knew after 4th of July it would be a lot of time. But anyway, we, we would play down there all the time, but we would go on the roof, and we would wander around on the roof, and, you know, there, there was you could climb the school to get up the roof, you could climb a, cre- a tree to get onto the roof, and it was just cool to have a good view. And one of the things that I remember doing early on was we'd dare each other to jump off the roof. Oh, my God. And it was only one story, but it was an elementary school. Like if you can imagine how high is the, the flat roof of an elementary school, a typical, you know, built-in-the-50s elementary school. High enough. It was pretty high. <laughs> As one of my most vivid sense memories from that young, from, you know, five or six or seven years old, is what it was like to jump off the roof of that school. Because I'm pretty sure I was the first person to actually do it. And I remember the the sandy ground rushing up at me. And I remember underestimating how forceful the landing would be and how, you know, I'm used to, like, jumping off things and catching and having my legs sort of, you know, using my legs to absorb the impact. And I did that, but it's like the legs absorbing the impact. It's like, okay, now the legs are spent. It's like bottoming out, bottoming out the suspension on your car. Uh-huh. That's my legs just bottomed out. And I remember my butt hit the ground and my chin hit my knees. <laughs> and, oh, God. You know, and, and I did catch myself with a lot with my legs the good way I knew how. So I had slowed myself down sufficiently so I didn't knock any teeth out of my mouth. But I remember my butt hurt and my chin hurt and my legs hurt. You're so, I hate to sound like a dad, but you're so fortunate it wasn't worse than that. Yeah, and and I was just jumping onto like sandy ground. Why? Because you know that's a thing that kids did. They're just like you said, d- you know, daring daring each other to do stupid things and thinking of things that we can do that might be fun. The only one I want to go to now because we are running a little long is yeah. And listen, listen, let me just get this over with real quick. Mine is nothing compared to these. <laughs> I tried to impress a girl named Melissa. Uh, I I rode my bike down a hill around a quarter, jumped a ramp, went ass over tea kettle, uh, got a like eight inch scar on my leg. 
nothing, nothing like jumping off a roof. But but bike bike related things are pretty uh, pretty common. Like we lived on our bikes. That's how we got to all of these things. But you could also just like get, you know, you could get ground up in the chain of your bike. There's a lot of ways to get injured on a bike doing nothing. Yeah, getting pant legs caught in chains on bike was very that. popular. Falling falling off of your seat and landing on the bar, oh. very painful, very memorable. Mm. Happened many many yep. many times. Um, but like we would just rove the neighborhood on our bikes. And one of the most popular things that we were all a background job, we were all running while riding on our bikes is we were constantly looking at people's garbage, whatever they were putting at the curb. <laughs> we were interested in that for, for treasures. Yes. Right. Yeah. So because what, what would people throw out? Um, what we were <laughs> fireworks, for, rope, police. <laughs> yeah, what we were mostly looking for was uh, wood boards, wooden boards or whatever, because the main activity was let's make a ramp of the things in this person's garbage. If they had any kind of piece of plywood or, or wooden boards or anything that we could put on an angle and take some of their other garbage and put it under it, we would make a ramp out of like, a, you know, an old television or a toaster with a plank uh, on top of it. And now you've got a ramp. And we would ride our bikes at it. We would set it up at the bottom of a hill and ride our bikes at it as fast as we can and hit it. And the first person to hit it would discover that the ramp was not correctly built. And they would just shove the toaster out in front of it. And, and the, the ramp would slap down flat and they would go flying off their bicycle. And we'd try to rebuild the ramp to get it so that it could actually sustain the impact of a kid riding up it. It was, it was the worst. And we, this is in the middle of the road, by the way. So we're doing this. We're trying to jump off this ramp in the middle of the road or set the ramp up on the edge of a curb or on the edge of a, a hill on someone's lawn to get the most possible air. Tragic death tonight on Long Island. <laughs> trying to injure ourselves and, and mostly failing. Uh, the older kids would uh, would often, it was kind of like finding the artifacts of like the ancient ones. The older kids, who seemed impossibly old to us, were probably 13, right? Mm -hmm. Would dig uh, dirt bike paths in the woods. They would make jumps. They'd bring shovels in and they would make jumps by digging a big pit so you'd go down into the pit and then go up out of the pit, and that would be the jump, right? So they, they'd build these amazing, like, sort of BMX dirt bike paths through the trees with, you know, tiny gaps between the trees that they would slowly wear down with their bicycles so it was like a dirt path, and then dig, like, you know, put up these big berms to do curves and dig pits, you know, gravity pits to, to go down and, and make these jumps out of dirt. And we would find these artifacts of the older kids, and we would use them. And we would jump off of them and get incredible air and slam into trees and land on the ground and l lose our footing on the pedals and, you know, just and land on the bar. Troopers running into trees. <laughs> yeah, and and you know, come coming to get way too high and coming to a landing and our feet would slip off the pedals and we would land on the bar and hit our balls and everyone else would laugh and we'd be writhing on the ground. Or, you know, so many. Uh, I I think I'm amazed that I didn't get stitches. I think probably I needed them one time. I cut my leg on a piece of metal i probably should have got stitches but i hid it from my parents like a like you know dogs hide their injuries from the other people in the pack so they don't get eaten or whatever um but i i think i saw every single one of my friends get stitches at least oh. once most of my friends i saw break some kind of bone <laughs> and somehow oh i avoided God. all of this but it wasn't it wasn't for lack of trying so yeah I, I, it's not 80s doesn't sound like that long ago but it's like in my little primitive monkey brain all i wanted to do and all my friends wanted to do was increasingly dangerous and daring things because it just seemed like it would be cool and no one had ever had any thought about what we were doing might be dangerous or what the limits might be we just did as much as we possibly could and we were mainly protected by the fact that we were small and stupid and couldn't really build anything that impressive. you're still young enough to bounce but you know uh i was gonna say lance murdoch this is also like not so far off the time of evil knievel and like America, or at least this American, was obsessed with the. I wrote Evil Knievel 
in a magic marker on the side of uh, my big wheel. And it had two typos on it. But <laughs> uh, I misspelled evil and I misspelled Knievel. Well, he misspelled evil. Oh, my God. You're right. <laughs> oh, my God. The call's coming from inside the Harley. Uh, and by the way, that movie, the movie that he, the Evil Knievel movie with him and Gene Kelly, mm, Magnifique, really good movie. Uh, it begins with Evil Knievel breaking into the orphanage he uh, was raised in to, to give Evil Knievel toys to all of the uh, orphans. <laughs> I had. Did you have the one where you, you turn the crank and it I makes did. his wheel? Of course I did. Yeah. Yes. That was an awesome toy. It was a really good toy. Like it, like the SSTs, like it, it seems like it shouldn't have worked given how crappy most toys were. Mm-hmm, but it, it totally was amazing worked. how well that thing really would pop a wheelie or whatever. Like it's one of the few ch- children's toys from the 70s that actually was as cool as it looked in the commercial. Yeah. I have to, you're right. Yeah, I didn't have thought of that, but Evil Knievel is a lot to blame slash thank for what our friends did because we all loved Evil Knievel. We all had that toy. Did. And, and, and like the same way that Bigfoot and UFOs were big in the 70s uh, and, out and, of proportion. And quicksand and people and, in and suits. It was and all Evil Knievel. <laughs> and, and, and what did Evil Knievel do? Increasingly dangerous things on television. Yeah, it was so funny. It was, I think it was in because, like, one of his big cr- famous crashes, I think the most famous crash was in Las Vegas, the Caesar's Palace jump. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he said knowingly, but he also he'd done a jump at Kings Island near where I live. And then I, it was so funny because what was it he originally wanted to jump with his rocket uh, car? Snake River Canyon? No, no, no. That was his fallback. I think it was like the Grand Canyon. And yeah, the yeah. parks, people wouldn't let him do it. And so. Yeah. Okay. So, um, you, you're, we should get to our songs, but, um, you said you were still climbing trees. It sounds like into your teen years. When do you, what do you remember in retrospect about when you stopped, assuming you have stopped, when did you stop doing obviously dangerous stuff? Um, uh, like when and why? I think I mostly stopped probably when I got my license. I think I've talked about this before, but before I got my driver's license, I rode, you know, I I upgraded my bike from a BMX to eventually to a a 10-speed or 12-speed because that was more efficient for transport. And so I would actually use it to go to places increasingly far away. Oh, that puts you into your off-roading Ewok career. But now I I need to go to the mall to get a model airplane or buy something at the D&D store and the malls is 10 miles away and I'm driving on highways where I'm not supposed to be. In, in the quote-unquote shoulder of the highway where people are going 60 miles an hour, but I just need to get there. John, that is insane. I, I just needed to get to the store, and how else was I going to get to the store? So I'd bring a backpack, and I'd get on my bike, and I'd ride there, and I'd get there, and I'd get my model, and I'd, and I'd ride I back. I would watch this documentary in a heartbeat. The, but that was just like, that was just transport, right? Still, yeah. in the neighborhood, that we, in the final neighborhood that I lived in, it was, it was very hilly, and there was one particular hill that was incredibly long and steep. And every time I came back home from anywhere... Instead of taking the straight route home, I'd take the scenic route that took me down that hill. And I would try to see how, I, by this point, I had a bike computer that would tell me what my speed was. Yeah. And I would try to see if I can break my maximum speed record by going down this extremely steep hill and pedaling as hard as I possibly can in the, can in the highest gear of my 10 or 15 speed bicycle oh my and God. looking at my speedometer. And by the way, the pavement was not smooth. It was filled with potholes and the whole bike was shaking around and jumping all over the place. It had no suspension. It was just a road bike. Um, I did that right up until probably I got my license and then I could actually drive to places. But I don't think the instinct ever left me. I think just the opportunity to endanger myself became more and more scarce. And I was a little bit of a bad driver, but mostly I think by the time I started I driving, dangerous, I was such a dangerous driver. 
Yes, I've heard your stories, and you definitely, I think you were worse than I was, I, but I think the, I think getting a license and actually getting into a bunch of car accidents, because I was, <laughs> I was a dangerous driver, um, you know, when I first got my license, sort of put the fear into me and connected the little neurons in my brain and said, hey, dummy, mm-hmm. <laughs> cars are deadly, and they're not bicycles, and you won't bounce. Uh, and so that, I feel like, you know, made me eventually a safer driver, uh, and mostly removed all opportunities for me to seriously endanger myself. One Saturday morning, my mom woke up and walked out to the kitchen. I'd gotten up early and she walked into the kitchen to see her son sitting on the floor of the kitchen with his Adam 12 lunchbox and a bottle of Fred Flintstone of Flintstone's vitamins and a knife and fork. And I was, I was cutting, I was cutting them up like I was having a fancy meal and I had many, <laughs> many Flintstone's vitamins. Better than the time I chewed on batteries. That really scared the crap out of her. That's that's dangerous things you do. You don't necessarily sh- you know you don't necessarily know it's dangerous and you flip your parents out. But that's mostly just like you were you were trying to do something adorable there, having a little meal of Flintstone vitamins. You just wanted to have a fancy meal with silverware. You know that could be harmful. Well, 